Jonathan Wakefield is a brewmaster and founder of Miami's renowned Jay Wakefield Brewing. Now he's opening up his internationally acclaimed tap room at Sirius XM Business Radio for an intimate look at the intersection of craft beer and popular culture. So pull up a chair, have a round on us, and join the conversation on the business of brewing. This is the Beer Hour with Jonathan Wakefield on Sirius XM Business Radio. Hi, I'm Jonathan Wakefield, and this is the Beer Hour on Sirius XM Business Radio 132. Each week, we introduce you to the movers and the shakers of the craft beer business and other interesting fields of endeavor. I'm here in the tap room with my co-host, Maria Cabre. Hey, Maria. Hey. Who's our first guest this week? In 2009, our next guest went to England to study traditional British brewing techniques in a university setting. He returned to his native Pennsylvania, renovated an 1800s Victorian home, and opened Forest and Main Brewing Company in Ambler, Pennsylvania with fellow brewer Jared Olson. With a focus on both English-style and Belgian-style ales, Forest and Main garnered much acclaim in the greater Philadelphia craft beer community and beyond. Before long, they outgrew their space, relocated a few blocks away, and also opened a second tap room. Welcome to the Beer Hour, Dan Endicott. Thank you very much for joining us today. It is a pleasure to have you on. Thank you for having me. It's, uh, it's actually, we've been try- trying to get uh, somebody from you guys. I mean, I've been a longtime fan and kind of awesome. fa- fanboy of you guys. Uh, I think it was 2020 that we actually had you guys beer at Wakefest pouring. So it's, That's uh, right. Yeah, it's uh, it's been a it's been a while coming for sure. So, Definitely. did you guys did you actually grow up in Ambler? Um, just outside Ambler, like five minutes outside of Ambler. Um, but Ambler was always like a little town near where I grew up. Um, so yeah, it's the suburbs out here. So, <laughs> yeah. can, can you describe Ambler to our listeners who may not have been there before? Yeah, so it's it's an old uh, railroad town. Um, about 40 minutes south northwest of Philly. Um, it's built, it was like a mill town in the late 1800s. Uh, and um, just like kind of a one street town with a, a couple houses around there and a lot of farmland. And then it slowly built up. And then our claim to fame is um, asbestos. We are, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> really? The asbestos capital of the world. Um, really? So, uh, yeah. Yeah. We, we don't tell most people about that, but. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> So most of the town was built up around the the factory and um, the uh, the estate of the owner of the factory. Um, so he built these real ornate houses kind of around his house, and uh, so it's what they call a factory town, where like he built the houses and then you would live there free, but he would take money out of your your paycheck. Oh, really? And, um, so the houses, as they get further away from the from his house, get smaller and smaller and <laughs> of less. Course. Of um, yep. Oh. Um, so yeah, it's a nice little walkable downtown. I mean, it's so. Uh, because of the asbestos history, went through kind of a, a real bad time in the 70s and 80s when they realized what asbestos was and how bad it was. Um, right. And then um, kind of around the turn of the century, the you know the town kind of revitalized itself. Um, got a real good movie theater that brought a bunch of interest to the town and restaurants started popping up. And then um, here we are, and it's, it's a pretty sought-after place to live and start a family right outside of Philly. So. Nice, nice. So when, like, when did you get into craft beer? Was there like a specific beer that you fell in love with or that kind of turned that switch or lit that, you know, fire for you? Yeah, for sure. Uh, It was kind of funny. I mean, I wasn't into beer at all, but my brother very much liked beer. Um, So I got him a 
homebrew kit for Christmas one year and uh, okay. started doing, with, doing that with him and then uh, kind of got into beer through making it first. And, uh, and then my kind of gateway beer was Yards ESA. Um, it's like a ESB, they call it Extra Special Ale. Um, so just a very classic British style beer. And that was what, what really got me fully into craft beer. So, I mean, I think we've now talked to numerous people. But including myself, I mean, it was always, there was a lot of us that were homebrew kit for Christmas. <laughs> that kind of started the whole chain right. of events and like that kind of reactionary thing. But was it, it a Mr. It, Beer? Was uh, it? No, it was no, a okay. step up from that. It was like the white bucket with the blue lid. Okay. Uh, okay. Yeah. yeah okay. So. But it was the homebrew Christmas gift that started the whole yep. thing. That's pretty awesome. Does that happen anymore? Do brewers get into beer that way anymore? I don't I, think so. I don't think so. I think that was kind of like our generation and, yeah. you know, like that early 2000s, late 90s kind of thing. Because I think people still homebrew, but I don't think mm-hmm. the people are, that are homebrewing in this generation are like, yeah, we're going to open a brewery. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that happens anymore. Or it's just that divine, like, you know, like that thought, wow, wow, this is also an art form. This is something creative. This is yeah. something mm-hmm. we're doing that we love doing that we want to take to an, the next level. I, I, think, I don't think that happens. I think people nowadays are going, since you have access to more breweries, they're going to breweries and then they're saying, hey, I can do this at home. Right. Yeah. And, right. And that's kind of what it is. You guys you started doing it as a hobby and then it was like, holy shit, I can actually do something with this and open something up. Well, there was also not a lot of breweries. Right, exactly. <laughs> you know? Exactly. Like when I started in 2005, I mean, in the country, there might've been 1200 in the whole country. You know, now Jeez. we're, now we're well over 8,000. You know what I mean? But it's not. yeah, it's, it's completely different nowadays. So <laughs> kind of bringing it back in 2009, you made a bold move to go to art school and you went to England to study traditional brewing techniques at, uh, yep. It was, at, uh, at brew and over there. Um, so it's just South of Newcastle. Um, so you actually left art school. No, no, no. I graduated art school in 2005. Okay. Um, so so you that, gra- and then, in, and then yeah, you made the move. Wow. Yep. Um, so yeah, it was just kind of, a. Uh, doing odd jobs and random stuff. That's when I got into homebrewing after college. Wow. And, um, so, just, you, so you yeah. actually picked up and moved. To no, England? I didn't move fully. No, it was like a, it was a shorter course. It was a three week course specializing just in like learning how to make Cascale. Um, oh. so, um, just an intensive course over there and like work days in breweries and then, uh, came back. So where, where was this program at in England? That was uh, in Sunderland, which is um, just across the river from Newcastle. So okay. north, yeah, northwest, northeast England. I'm sorry. Yeah, northeast. Yeah, yeah so in the north. <laughs> yeah, right on the border of like England and uh, and Scotland. So can you can you tell me a little bit about that like three week program? I mean, I mean, it had to be pretty immersive for like three weeks to learn how to do this stuff. It was, yeah. So that you, I mean, you they assumed you knew how to make beer first off, um, right? And so they didn't they didn't cover the basics. It was it was mainly just like you know, you know how to make beer. Here's why we, here's how we, in a, in a larger brewery make Cascale. And it was, it was, it was, it blew my mind as a, an American home brewer, just to see the simplicity of how they make beer over there. And just, it, you know, nothing was wasted and everything made sense. And the, 
the fact that people were drinking beer like seven days after it was brewed. Right. It was just like eye opening to me. Um, Right. Because, because most of the time when you were homebrewing it, there were, I mean, the note to me was always like two weeks, three weeks. Exactly. There's a fine schedule. Right. Um, So yeah, it was the, it was nuts to put beer, still fermenting beer into a cask and send it out to the pub and it's like bubbles coming out of it. And it's, yeah, it's very cool. Um, I mean, that, that is actually, you know, I mean, I, I think that's really, I mean, I think it's starting to come back, but I think it's kind of like a lost art form like Cascale. I don't think a lot of Americans really understand that. I mean, would you for agree? Sure. Yeah. I mean, it, partly because it goes against everything you learn as a, as an American home brewer. I mean, right. to like let the beer finish and not rush it. And, you know, you learn all about um, diacetyl rests and everything. And right. Of course. You know, that just happens naturally there. It's part of the, I guess, serving the beer warmer. It just goes through that. And, uh, yeah, so it's, I, I think it scares a lot of home brewers, a lot of American brewers, you know, just because it's, it's very unnatural. And, and actually, like, our most of our breweries aren't really set up to do it um, properly. Well, that's true. That is very true. I mean, I think one or two times through the course of us being open over eight years, I mean, there used to be a cask ale festival in Atlanta. And they're like, yeah, just put the beer in a cask. And it's obviously something that right. I, I never learned or was taught. So mm-hmm. it, it was kind of like on the fly. It's like, okay, the beer's almost finished. So I think now's the time <laughs> to come out of the fermenter and put it in the cask with the priming, you know, and right. then, then kind of leave it from there. But it was, it's definitely not something that, you know, is really taught here. And then, of course, the American way is to, like, add marshmallows to the cask or something and <laughs> totally fuck it up. Yes. <laughs> right. Right. Like, we cannot leave anything in simplistic yes. form. We have to alter it somehow to make it a monstrous version of what it really should be. Yeah. I mean, what's your thoughts, though, like, I mean, on, like, having that kind of formal education and, like, kind of accelerating that move through like the learning curve. Do you think that definitely was beneficial for you in the long run? I think so. I mean, um, at the time I did it just cause I was trying to find a job. Um, like I was ready to wash kegs, do anything in a brewery. And like you said earlier, like there weren't that many breweries around. So right. I, you know, short of, I wasn't ready to just move across the country. And, um, and uh, I was like, well, if I get, you know, something on my resume, maybe that'll help me get my foot in the door. And um, I skipped working for someone else and just went right to opening my own place. So, Right. It helped me a lot just in feeling ready to open my own brewery um, with that on my resume. And then with Jared's history brewing saisons, you know, it's uh, gave us a lot more to start with. Um, so after you went back from the three week course, how long was it before you decided like to open the brewery? Um, I mean, I decided I knew coming home, I knew that's what I wanted to do, um, but it wasn't until um, so Jerry and I were, were friends for a while and he was brewing professionally and I was kind of picking his brain and sending him links to, to, uh, equipment I wanted to buy. And then one day we just sort of decided to partner up since we both were into somewhat similar beer styles. And, uh, so that was probably about six months after coming back from England, I think we decided to do that. And then, uh, about a year after I came back from England, we purchased all the equipment nice. and, um, and then it was in storage for like another year until we opened. So it wasn't long, you know, it definitely got things moving. Um, so, I mean, the story kind of goes that you converted a quaint 1880s Victorian house into a brew pub with the help of friends and family. How did you find the space? And what do you remember about that year when you were building it out? Um, yes, yeah, so we found it 
I mean, neither one of us were living in Amble at the time, but we were both pretty close by. And uh, we started thinking about Philly to open up, but we both weren't so much the big city people. So the, like the smaller town felt better to us. And um, we started looking at Ambler. We were actually looking at a building next door to the, uh, the house that we wound up in. And as we had to walk around the building to go to the back of the, of the bigger warehouse that we were looking at, there's this little Victorian with like a for rent sign outside and says good for like cafe or whatever. And we got, <laughs> you know, kind of laughed at it. And then um, our realtor suggested we take a look at it. And um, we still didn't think it was really possible, but there's a room in the back. It, it had been a bakery before us. Really? And, uh, okay. They, they kind of like converted a back room into the actual baking space. Wow. And it was like 20 feet by 11, like, you know, that was our whole brewery, but we did the math and figured out we could fit everything in there um, with no room for any of the <laughs> stuff that would make our lives easier. Just right. we can like, we can cram this equipment in there and somehow make beer, you know, the naive home brewer turning into a you know, professional brewer. And um, yeah, so it was a long process. The house, you know, it, it had carpeting and just track lighting and everything. And we wanted to take it back to like the Victorian kind of splendor that it had originally. So we, of course, we did it all ourselves because we're young and dumb um, and had no money. So, <laughs> yeah, right, we'll save money. You know, save money on on paying people to do stuff, and instead pay rent for like a year. Um, so, right. um, so yeah, we eventually got the place fixed up and got the brewery installed and learned how to like get a kitchen certified and get a brewery inspected. All the stuff we had no idea how to do it. We just like you know figured out. Of course, um, you got to figure it on the fly. I mean, but. I think that kind of makes for a better story, but it's also better for growth and understanding, you know, because obviously you grow in business and keep going. You're more prepared and better equipped for the next step. If you know, when you take that next step with like the next size brewery. Correct. Yeah. I mean, looking back, I like, there's a million things I would do differently now, but I don't think I'd actually change them. I think it got us to where we are. And it, it like you said, it was part of the story and the lore of the place. So there's a, a lot faster, smarter, cheaper ways to do what we did, but, I think it worked out in the end. So what size system did you jam in the house? It was called seven barrels. It was all dairy equipment. Um, So yeah, it was sold to us as like seven barrels. We got about six barrels out of it, usually five for a copy stuff. Um, And um, yeah, then we had, uh, we opened with two horizontal open fermenters in the room and then like two upright old wine tanks as our Saison tanks. Really? quickly learned that the horizontals weren't really going to work out. You know, it's like, it was a romantic notion, but those beers, when they're ready, they had to move. And we dumped at least one or two batches that we just couldn't get transferred in time. And, um, okay. So yeah, we eventually got those out of there, got some, some more uprights in there and, um, then wound up renting the building next door and adding more brewery space over there. Nice. So we've slowly like expanded from that one little house. And <laughs> right. then, Okay. Now, 10 years later, we have a real brewery. Um, so. <laughs> I mean, listen, I, I still think it's a real brewery when you're operating out of that space and jamming out, you know what I mean? It, it's still impressive because, I mean, we're still in our same location here. We haven't expanded. We're working still on expansion, you know, seven years in. It's always a tough road. Miami is expensive, whatever. 7,000 barrels, I'm sorry, 5,000 barrels out of this space. And everybody that walks in here that comes from a bigger brewery, other half, those other guys, they're like, mm-hmm. you're doing that much volume out of this small space. And I'm just like, yeah, man, we make it work. You know, it, it, exactly. it's yeah. what happens. So, you, you know, you can still jam out in the small space and do great things. 
so sure. I, I have like a so how were you guys received obviously when you guys opened an ambler how did how did it all go over especially you know philly not being far and philly being a major beer town how did you guys how were you received it's pretty interesting i mean um when we opened, we had, uh, you know, we had, we've always had three beers on hand pump, but when we opened, when they were literally in our cellar, um, which in the middle of April was kind of nice. It was probably like 50 degrees. Um, okay. but those beers were still a shock to most of the people out in suburban Ambler. Um, you know, just warm, flat beer. And, uh, <laughs> right. we also had like some barrel aged saisons on draft. So, you know, this is 10 years ago. Craft beer was not as popular as it is now. No. And, uh, nowhere near it. And even IPAs weren't that well known. Um, no. So here we are, we have like two barrel age saisons on draft and three hand pumps and people were, they had no idea what they were drinking, but strangely <laughs> enough, they were, they were really into like the, you know, the sour funky saisons on draft. Um, nice. Because I think they had no preconceived notions about it. They were, you know, we just, like there was, we would ask them if they liked wine, you know, and they're like, okay, well maybe try this. And a lot of people were really into it. Um, but then come like August, the cellar was probably like 80 degrees oh. and our past beer was very warm. Um, <laughs> so yeah, the, you know, we quickly became known around town as like the place with the warm flat beer. Um, but <laughs> that in, in some way, I think that worked. It, it attracted like the real diehard beer nerds to of us course. and people were taking a train out from Philly. And I think word got around, you know, within the brewing community about us. Um, so I think, you know, our faults were also our, our, you know, saving graces. I, I mean, so. I mean, I heard of you guys, but I, I mean, it wasn't for warm, flat beer, but I mean, I heard you guys were, you know, doing some great things with beer itself, well, you know what I mean? And doing more traditional works that were mm-hmm. really well executed. So that's how I heard about you guys, and that's how, you know, that's when I started hounding you guys to invite you to, to Wakefest and stuff. But, you know, it's definitely you did, act, you know, create this following for sure. You're listening to the Beer Hour, and we're speaking to Dan Endicott of Forest in Maine. So I, I just want to kind of speak on the two styles you guys kind of focused on. You focus on British cask ales and mm-hmm. Jared on Belgian farmhouse and sour ales. Do you mind describing to those of our listeners that may not be as well educated on the styles why you were drawn to making them? Yeah, I try and figure that out myself sometimes. I mean, uh, <laughs> I don't know. It's like, like okay. earlier, it was the beer that first drew me into into beer. You know, the right. ESA, the kind of maltier, smoother beer. Um, yeah, just instantly was in love with these British beers. And... Um, to this day, it's still, you know, my favorite beer style. Yeah. And, uh, we always say like they're those and like the lower alcohol saisons are so cool to us because they're both like very simple and complex beers. Um, and they're the beers that you can like sit around and drink and not think about them at all. You just, you know, it's a good beer. It's right. low ABV. You can have a few, or you can really dive into those beers and kind of like dissect them and see what it is that makes them so interesting. Um, and they're, you know, they're so different from like all the other beers that are popular, like over the top IPAs and everything. There's like, there's subtle, you know, just like well-made nuanced beers and that appeals to us. You know, but I think, I mean, the more and more brewers that I talk to, the more <clears throat> we're coming back to those roots, you know, because, so. you know, you start to see this large push for loggers. 
you start to see, you know, mm-hmm. people just want pilsners. They don't want these heavy adjuncted or heavy fruited slushy sours. They just want good beer, just beer. You know yeah, what I mean? It's refreshing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I think it's a great thing because it kind of like brings us back to, I mean, not that I want to go brew, you know, smoked Hellas or, uh, you know, mm-hmm. a, a Roush beer all the time. But I you know what I mean? bad news for you. Our collab with Perennial is a smoked Hellas. But I, <laughs> I know that. Okay. I know that. <laughs> just I'm just saying, sure. I'm just saying, listen, I'm just saying like to make that all the time. You know what I mean? But at least, right. you know, you can kind of stretch your wings and do these other styles that I think are more classic beer styles without having to put marshmallows or <laughs> chocolate, you know, or gummy worms or whatever into the beer. I, I think we're actually coming back to full circle mm-hmm. on like the historical scale of being actually drinking just regular beer again. Well, we saw it last year. We brewed an mm-hmm. ESB because my brewer wanted to brew oh, one nice. and I do the distro now. I used to brew and I'm like, am I going to be able to sell this to anybody? Right. Right. But it flew uh, Wisconsin, Minnesota, yep. Virginia. Right. They all took the wow. beer. And, so and that's not saying like it was nice. You know, like when we opened, yeah. I always loved historical brews. I mean, it's why I dove into Berliner Weiss mm-hmm. way before anybody else was making Berliner Weiss. Right. We also made when we opened, we also made, you know, a cot busser. No one knows what that was, you know, but it's another dead style. It, it's just a mm-hmm. classic beer style with nothing in it, just straight up good, clean beer. And I and I and I'm hoping and knock on wood that we're, we're we really are making it back to those days. I think so. I think we are. I thought it was like uh, right when the pandemic hit, we started. So we switched to canning everything, and we we're selling everything just out the door and del- uh, delivering to homes. And we were shocked at how much the jump in sales for low ABV stuff was. Yep. And uh, I thought it was maybe just a byproduct of the pandemic, but it's stuck around. So I don't yeah. know. It's, very, it's really refreshing. and reassuring, Absolutely. So. I, I would agree 100%. So recently you left your original location, the converted 1880s Victorian house on 61 North main street. What was behind the move to your current location? Um, well, definitely the, the pandemic sped that up. I mean, I, so right. we, um, prior to the pandemic, we, you know, we had a, the original Victorian house, which had a full restaurant and a very small bar and it, like a five seater bar. Right. And then we had the building next door that was a much bigger bar and, um, we were selling cans and bottles and, but everything was pretty much over the bar top, you know, um, our can percentage of sales were very minor. So then when the pandemic hit, everything went in cans and, um, it was uh, a much easier kind of life for us. I mean, it was like we'd right. fill up a bright tank, we'd can the whole thing off, and we'd sell it. And of it was, course. You know. Yeah. And as much as we loved the restaurant, it rarely ever made money. It was sort of just like, you know, treaded water and and the headaches that came with a restaurant, especially in a house from the 1880s, were oh, yes. huge. I'm sure. Yeah. So while it was sad to close that, it kind of – made us reevaluate a whole business and just kind of focus on beer. And then without the restaurant, that house didn't really make sense as just like, we tried to figure out how, if we can pay the rent, just having a bar, do we have someone else come in and run the restaurant? And none of the options we could think of made any sense. Um, so we had to make the tough decision to get out of there. And um, so we put together a business plan. And this is, um, this is when our brewer at the time, Brian D'Angelo approached us about, 
becoming a third partner in the business. Okay. So he invested in the business and was hugely instrumental in making this whole expansion happen. Um, I mean, he just had the brain for the business plan and the numbers and everything. And nice. So we, we purchased a new brew house and uh, renovated a 8,000 square foot warehouse, just Ooh. like two blocks away. Okay. Um, so it's pretty close. Um, so yeah, so it went from this little six barrel dairy equipment <laughs> um, with a skateboard pump. Right. Know, to a fully automated specific uh, 15 barrel system. Nice, so, man. That's awesome. Quite a change. Um, oh, yeah. So. Yeah, absolutely. So you made the move. You obviously now are operating on a 15 barrel brew house, producing more volume. What what percentage of that beer that you're producing now is sold in the tap room versus distro, you think? Um, it's probably about 60% in the tap room, 40% distro. Yeah. We're hoping to get that closer to 50-50. Right. Um, you know, uh, distro is very new for us. We just started it in January and doing it ourselves. And, you know, it, that's a different ball game. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's a yeah, totally yeah, different ball game. Really opened our eyes to just like, you know, silly things like the way we describe beers on the can, the beer style itself, um, just all that stuff that we never had to think about before. Cause it was just like our bartenders would sell the beer and they could talk about it very well. But now you have someone in the store looking at this and it's like, does pale ale read the same as like, <laughs> IPA, what's the, exactly. where do you divide them? You know, the yeah, percentage it, of IPA versus, so all that fun stuff. Um, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's like a total billboard game, you know, for, for the customers. Once you move to that, like, retail market space on a store shelf, right. like, it, 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 you know, it all changes. It's It definitely yeah. becomes this game. So have your have your beer offerings changed at all since moving or expanding? or? Um. Only in that we're now able to consistently make lagers and make them pretty frequently. Ah, okay. Um, yeah. So, which is something we always wanted to do at the old brewery and we were able to sneak them in every now and then. Um, yeah. But now we have two dedicated lager tanks and um, can really turn them out pretty consistently. So that's, that's the only thing that's really changed. Um, also our, our Oak program has kind of um, suffered as a result of the move, but we're building that up now again. So, right. We haven't had as many barrel aged saisons and bottles in the last few months as we'd like, but that'll of course come like nine months from now. That'll be back where nice. it should be. Nice. Um, yeah. Okay. So yeah. you feature both side pull taps or you know check locker faucets and British mm-hmm. beer engines with hand pumps in the new tap room. Can yep. you can you explain what those two pouring methods do and why they're important for you to have at Forest and Maine? Definitely. Yeah. The, um, so the side pulls are new to us. Obviously they've kind of grown in popularity recently yep. yes. and, um, shout out to human robot in Philly for kind of getting that going. <laughs> nice. Um, but, uh, so yeah, we were excited when we were building the new bar out to work them into the plan. And, um, they, we always say like it pours the head first. So, you, you know, you put the nozzle in there and then open up and it gives us like real thick kind of creamy head. And then, um, the beer kind of fills up from underneath and, we sell it to the consumer. Like it's a much, it's like a more aromatic way to serve the beer. Kind of opens it up a little more the, in a way like kind of knocks some of the carbonation out of the beer. So it's a little gentler, like, uh, right. The CO2 is not as abrasive. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but it's still got that nice puffy head on top. Um, and yeah, those have been great. And and the amount of lager and we've been pouring our Kolsch on the side pole. So the amount of beers we're selling through there is, is, pretty staggering. I mean, it's like up there with our IPA sales, um, which we never thought would happen. And then, um, <laughs> so then the hand pulls are, are pretty cool. So it serves the beer with no 
no um, outside carbonation pushing the beer. Basically, siphons it up from the cellar. And um, those beers are cool because they go into the the cask like pretty much flat. There's very little carbonation. We we kind of trap a little bit of the tail end of carbonation in there. And then, um, but if you were to pour it from a regular faucet, it would look like a still beer. But then um, there are these cool sparklers that we put on the on the end of the the hand pumps that sort of similar to the side pull, just kind of agitate that little bit of carbonation that's in the beer and open it up. So it gives it that like Guinness kind of nitro creamy head on oh, the top. Wow. Okay. But then it's otherwise like a pretty uncarbonated beer. So <laughs> in terms of like drinking experiences, it's the best because just totally smooth. And I right. mean, uh, that was over in England, they always say like the mark of a good pine is like, you can see three little sections of like the head going down. So it's just like a three gulp beer. Um, so, <laughs> nice. You know, but they're like, they're, it's also served a little warmer. So these are usually like 4% beers um, where if you serve them on draft, they'd be like a pretty unimpressive beer, um, just like overly cold, overly carbonated and not much to it. But once you serve it at like 45 with very little carbonation, it's it's a totally different beer. I have to say, you know, <clears throat> I think, you know, in the United States, we're so used to the idea that when you're served a beer, it has to be 38 32 like freezing cold but the real thing behind that is is the colder the beer is the less you actually taste the imperfections in the beer true Mm -hmm. you know what i mean so if you're serving your beer more at like room temperature it's gonna have less you know like you know less room to have imperfections because it's warmer so it's opened up and you are going to taste all of those flavors Mm -hmm. so i mean i know your beers have always been on point so you know, you guys are doing something right. Thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah, it's cool. And a lot of the hops that we use in those beers are, yeah, they're all European hops. They're much subtler, especially to like the American palate. Um, that, but at warmer temperatures, they really open up in these cool, yeah. like yeah. woody, grassy flavors. Um, I mean, I, I would encourage people to try some real Cascale or room temperature beer. Or if like you're going to have a beer at home, let it sit out and warm up and come to temperature and right. open up. So mm-hmm. you actually get to taste the real beer and the real flavor yeah. behind that beer. Um, I do have one last question. Yep. To you, what are the main differences between the experience in an English pub and an American craft beer bar? Okay. Um, say aside from the beer, it's definitely like the, the noise. I feel like an English pub to me is like a quiet, yes. like cozy little, little place where an American pub, like, American bar has TVs everywhere and noise. <laughs> yeah. Got to have music so, on, you know. Exactly. Beer, beer aside, the British pub is just like a relaxing kind of calmer atmosphere. And then, um, yeah, the beer is just, you know, an American bar. I would expect like 7% to be like the average right. percentage of alcohol. Right. Whereas over there, I'd say five is like the top yes. of what you would usually get. Yeah. Um, so just like a much, I don't know. I'd also, expect, in a British pub, I'd expect a much different demographic, um, you know, much more varied demographic than you get in an American bar. You get a lot of older people sitting around. Yes. Um, yeah. A lot of dogs sleeping under chairs. <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, yeah. Yeah. But then the beer is fantastic too. I mean, the ambiance is first rate, but then the beer is fantastic. Yeah. So I would agree, man. So, yeah, I mean, uh, awesome. I, I don't know if we would accept the, the quietness like a library in an American bar. <laughs> I kind of I mean? like that. I've I mean, never it's good. I mean, but if you think British about it, like the time that I've spent in England and the pubs that I've been to, most of the time it's people that want to go somewhere and relax after work 
Mm-hmm. And that's why it's that setting. You're not the relaxing type. So the pub was not your. No, I enjoyed the pub. I mean, and, and it was a breath of fresh air because like he's saying, most of the beers at max level were 5%. It was everything in between three and a half to 5%. And it's something you could go to the pub and have a couple pints and be okay to still drive home or walk home without a problem. Whereas here, I mean, you down a couple pints, you're needing to catch an Uber. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, it's a completely different setting. Definitely. Definitely. So. But thank you very much. Uh, it, this has been awesome. I want to. It's uh, been a pleasure. Yes, thank you for thank taking you for the time to come on the show. It. Thank you, brother. Thank you. For, and uh, have a good soon. one, man. Absolutely. You're listening to the Beer Hour with Jonathan Wakefield. Conversations on the business of brewing and popular culture. Our next guest turned his passions for illustration, web development, and craft beer into an online index of craft beer labels and artists. In the process of interviewing each artist. He became one of the country's foremost authorities on great craft beer label design. He created a website about craft beer culture called Thirsty Bastards, along with friend and fellow Chicago craft beer personality, Josh Hastert. He's here to tell us what makes a great craft beer label. Welcome to the Beer Hour, Craig Gunderson. Thank you very much for joining us this morning. Glad to be here. Hello. Yeah. Uh, so... We're going to kind of jump right into this. So you have a BFA in illustration. Where where did you go to college, and what was your career aspiration when you graduated? <laughs> oh, that's a great question. Um, so uh, I'm a lifelong Chicagoan. I went to school in, uh, in DeKalb, Illinois, uh, Northern Illinois University, and um, I actually wanted to uh, get into fantasy art. Uh, you know, Dungeons and Dragons. Really? Right about that. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, I have a whole portfolio of that stuff. Um, I've always been into comics. So, um, well, I mean, if, if do, you, do you see the wall behind me? I, I think you might be too. <laughs> um, and uh, it was one of those things too where like I knew I would probably make some comics and I do. Uh, but, uh, I, I figured I didn't need a portfolio for that. I right. would do it on my own, you know? Right. Um, so my portfolio was fantasy art. And um, uh, that's really what I was hoping to do is maybe get into like doing art for uh, for fantasy manuals and modules and stuff like that. And then um, Magic the Gathering was just taking off about that time too. And I thought maybe I could break into that. And I even... Um, have uh, uh, a colleague who graduated a little bit behind me who uh, he's huge in uh, the magic world and stuff. And I could just never, I could never break into it. So uh, it's kind of like um, very much the, uh, those who can't teach sort uh, of situation. Uh, so I spread the word about artists. Nice. Nice. Actually. Yeah. I mean, it's funny, like, because if you look at the illustrations in magic, the gathering, they're amazing. Along with, you know, I mean, and there's so many, I mean, we'll leave kind of like Pokemon out of this, uh, but like a lot of the other TCG games, you know, uh, Yu-Gi-Oh! And now you have um, like a Korra and all. Uh, there's so many upstarts. And if you look now, they're, they're putting so much effort into the illustration and art in those things that it's crazy. Mm-hmm. It's not like just childish. I mean, it's actually full on great like fantasy art. Absolutely. So I, mean, uh, I was lucky enough 
that uh, my instructor was actually um, Mark Nelson, oh, wow. uh, who, uh, who you know was in con- was actually doing um, uh, the Aliens book for Dark Horse at the time. I mean, we're, we're talking, yes, we're talking very early nineties. Yep. Uh, so I was super lucky to have him as an instructor too. That's amazing. When did you discover craft beer along this journey? Um, so, uh, I basically put myself through college, um, working, uh, in uh, banquet bartending okay. and, uh, just kind of in, in the suburbs and stuff. And, uh, my first exposure to craft beer was actually, um, drinking leftovers from an international, uh, beard event. They wanted some international craft beers for, a small banquet that happened and there was tons of leftover stuff and it was just beers that I had never heard of outside. Like the most exotic thing for me at the time was like Killian's red. Right. Uh, right so, of course. Uh, so, you know, I tried, uh, the one that stands out to me from was uh, Zingu, the black beer. Yes. And I was just like, this, this, you know, this is so much better than anything that I've, had to drink from a 30 pack in the woods because that's what we could get somebody <laughs> to buy for us, you know? Right. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it was just one of those things that, uh, you, you couldn't get that stuff typically unless you really sought it out, you know? Right. Of course. W- what inspired you to launch an online index of labels and artists? Um, I've always, because of my art background, I was always, um, I could just spend hours in a bookstore just looking at fantasy book covers and stuff. And the more of that you, you look at, you start to see the patterns, you start to recognize the style of artists. And I, you know, I just started attaching the, you know, looking for signatures on them. And that doesn't always happen even in the beer label world. Uh, You know, just really wanting to uh, recognize names and, and, you know, consistently see the talent and, and that sort of thing, you know, uh, who's, who spent the money on a Frank Frazetta cover for their fantasy novel, you know? Um, so I've always done that, whether it was with comics, buying comics because of the artists, not necessarily the characters. Um, right. And even just buying a comic for the cover, even if the cover artist didn't do the interior work. Yep. Right. Yep. Uh, and so that was really, that translated very easily over to beer labels. And, um, when I started to, when when artists really started jumping out at me, I thought, you know, if, if it'd be great if they were getting the credit for that and, 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 you know, in the Google world, people do search for, you know, half acre brewing artists or, uh, you know, Jolly Pumpkin artist, that kind of thing. So I figured there was uh, there's definitely a niche to fill there. Nice. So what what was like your process for getting it started? I mean, how did you find secure the label art and find out who created it? Um, there's a there's a little bit of outreach around it. Mostly, what I do is I peruse the uh, the TTB. Uh, cola registrations. Okay. And I just, I just look for what jumps out of me. I mean, obviously I can be in a store and something can jump out of me and I have a camera roll full of right. <laughs> liquor store shelves <laughs> <laughs> um, where I'm just kind of like, I, you know, note to self, look this up. 
but uh, you know, a lot of times I'll, I'll just reach out to, if there's somebody that really jumps out of me, I'll reach out to the brewery as, as best I can. Uh, Instagram makes that pretty easy. Uh, just to say like, even if I see something on Instagram, I'll respond and just say, wow, who's the artist on that? Even if it's just me saying someone asked who your, who your artist is and getting you to, to say it because you, you posted about your new beer. Right. And the, you know, the label feels a little secondary when you don't say this is who did it. Right. No, I, I agree with that. I mean, I can kind of feel that from our end, like as we've grown and gone over the years, we've had to like, change our art style but in the beginning for probably what the first four four years we were very heavy into artist laden designs Mm -hmm. labels and now that as we've grown and more commercialized i still miss that but we've gone kind of more graphic design over real artists every once in a while i can Mm -hmm. still plug somebody because most of the guys i was using are so busy now doing comics that it's like you know i'm too busy i can't do that you know every once in a while we're, we're able to secure one and they'll do one for me but it was it's really like that prop to give like those guys like, hey, Jose Verisi or Jeff Decal did this, you know, because it to me, it's still a work of art. Mm-hmm. So I think it is kind of important to kind of give those shout outs as far as like a graphic designer goes. I don't know. <laughs> you know? But like, I the, mean, it's still art. It's but, still art, but, but it's, it's not it's like a different it's not style. The same. Yeah, absolutely. When did you meet Josh Hester? I mean, so, uh... was it at the bar at Quinter's? <laughs> no, it was not as well before that. Um, I was, um, I had, I lived in DeKalb after I graduated and Josh actually uh, owned a record store two doors down from where I live. Oh, okay. And um, uh, he let me uh, put some of my self-published comics on his shelves. Oh, dope. And, um, and, you know, Josh is one of those people who like, once you're his friend, you're, you're just in forever and stuff. So we stayed in touch. He moved in, he moved into the city when I moved into the city and stuff. And, um, we've always been buds. We've always beer definitely brought us together. Um, we've made trips to breweries well before thirsty bastards was, was a thing just to, you know, whether once you uh, couldn't get new Glarus over the Illinois border, right. and you had to actually make a pilgrimage up there. Yep. That was a, a regular quick road trip for us. And we'd fill up a trunk and that kind of thing. So, um, but yeah, when he got the job at Quenchers, which sadly, uh, closed up a little while ago, um, yeah, I mean, it was just a dream come true to, to have somebody with that kind of passion for getting really good beers up on the, on the board on a regular basis, uh, you know, being such a close friend and stuff and, um, and regularly stopping in to see, you know, what it is that he was, uh, he was pouring. Nice. Nice. So when did you guys exactly start Thirsty Bastards website? So it was originally called Beer Labels Art. I couldn't get beerlabelart.com. So okay. it was beerlabelsart.com. Um, and um, just in kind of doing the research on what it takes to get real traffic to a website like that and get eyeballs coming your way and stuff, it was pointed out to me uh, pretty quickly that like, that's just too small of, of, of an audience. That's too small of a niche to, to really attract okay. a lot of readers and stuff. So, um, so it was kind of like, you know, expanded out. It, you're about beer culture. I've never been about 
writing beer reviews. I, I just feel like, um, yeah, it just yeah. doesn't last. It, it, it's not evergreen as, as like, if I'm going to use my spare time, I have a day job. If, I, right. if I'm going to use my spare time, it's going to be something that is just as readable a year from now, you know? Right. Of course. <laughs> of course. So, uh, I really, I've been doing a, the posts that I've been doing outside of just interviewing artists is like, uh, culture stuff that a lot of people aren't doing. Like I put up a, 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 a an exhaustive post of 180 something quotes about beer from different, uh, wow. you know, from writers and, and celebrities and right. just over the years, uh, even from, uh, Norse, uh, 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 script texts. Wow. Okay. And, and that kind of thing. So a little bit of everything there, but also how do you get, how, if I have a label and I'm, I have this pyramid of cans in my, on my coffee table because I can't part with the label because I like it too much. What's the best way to peel it off without tearing it? And, um, and what do I do with it after that? And, and stuff like that. So, um, I, kind of did a lot of testing and, um, and, uh, you know, air quotes, uh, research science on how to get labels off of cans and bottles so that you can, maybe you want to mount them and right. frame them or maybe you want to, maybe you're a scrapbooker. I don't know. Put them on the fridge. <laughs> so Put them on the fridge. Exactly. <laughs> um, and even now uh, you can get this, um, the sticker paper, it's called release paper. Really? Uh, and uh, I recycled a label and put it on my water bottle That's and made awesome. it a sticker, you know, cause That's there's awesome. enough adhesive stuff on there and stuff. So, uh, and then I homebrew. Oh, so nice. I, 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 I put up the occasional homebrewing article. Um, I, I'm working on one about how to clean your corny, corny keg because that's a, that's a thing that people Google, you know? So in some ways I'm a, I'm a slave to the keyword research and then I come back to the interviews because that's what I love and, and, uh, and you know, one for them, one for me kind of thing. That's awesome. You're listening to the beer hour and we're speaking to Craig Gunderson of thirsty bastard. So in your opinion, what are the key elements to a great craft beer label based on your informal research? <laughs> so my opinion. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Um, one thing I, uh, a few things that I don't like to see or that'll, that'll turn me off like right away, like is like, there's too much framing around the image. I, I love to see a good full bleed image. Okay. Um, it, I, it's, it's funny going to, uh, school for illustration, we were never really encouraged to try and work text say it's a title of a book or, um, you know, in the case of a label, the, the name of the beer, like don't try and draw that yourself. There's, that's what, you know, typographers are for, or, right. you know, someone else, someone else will lay that out for you and stuff, but incorporating that in a way that's, uh, that's not distracting from the image and stuff and also complementing the image is, is, is definitely, uh, uh, you know, much more attractive to me than, um, you know, I, sometimes you see a lot where there's a template and you can tell that they just kind of work the image into the template right. and, and there's no flow to it. There's no science to flow, but you can tell when there's no flow. Right. Right. Of course. 
Yeah, and there's a challenge too with the, just the idea that like this is a 3D object that you're going to be slapping this onto. You know, um, if there's a lot of times where you know an artist is going to work really hard to make a, a nice composition, and then you can only see you know half of it. Right, and you're turning the can in order to take it all in and stuff. I'm not saying that uh, that that's wrong. That you shouldn't. Uh, that you, sh- you should have an image that wraps all the way around, but it should be taken into consideration. You have you probably have a focal point for your label, and uh, and you know uh, everything else. You need to understand that it's not going to be all that unless you do take the time to peel it off. You're not going to see it all in one without holding it in your hand, you know? Of course. So do you think that the, the best labels are created when the, like the brewers or the brewery allows the artist to start with like just a clean visual slate, as opposed to providing an artist with a specific vision? Like this is your canvas. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. And do it. I, I've always been open to the idea of just letting the artist work. Yeah. I, I think, uh, I think the brewery is going to be pleasantly surprised when they get something back. If they, if they say, here's, here's what I definitely want. I want you to, to use your vision to, to come up with either your interpretation of that or just a cool image as long as it's got this in it. You're always going to be pleasantly surprised if you, uh, if you knew what you were getting into with that artist and stuff. I've also been in, I'm, you know, in that situation where someone has asked me to create art and maybe I've even misinterpreted the message, but what they got back, they were so happy with is like, oh, that's just so cool. Of course, I'm going to use it even though I don't know where you were going with this. (laughs) 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 I mean, right. I mean, it can go down that route as well, but you know, it's an artistic rendition of what they had in mind of for what that should be. Yeah. Right. And at the end of the day, let's not forget, this has got to stand out on a shelf. That's right. Right. Yes. It represents your, your, your branding and, and your brewery and, and, and all of that. But at the end of the day, what's this going to do for you uh, on a shelf or in a cooler right. that's going to get somebody to buy it? Yep. I absolutely agree. Right. So kind of leading into that, since you are one of the foremost authorities on craft beer labels, and we're going to kind of put you on the spot. Maybe, you know, we might piss some people off here, but give us your Mount Rushmore of craft beer label artists and which labels they are best known for. So um, I was really, really happy to be able to interview Adam Foreman uh, for Jolly Pumpkin. And it was really, it was, it was very early. And I don't, I'm not even sure if he's doing labels for, for them anymore. But I absolutely adore everything that he put onto a label for them and stuff. And I even have one right here framed right by my desk. Um, Which one? I uh, it's for just their Saison. Uh, and it's like a crow riding, a riding, oh, a, wow. wolf, uh, oh, riding a wolf. Yes. And the wolf, the wolf's face is, is blood red. That's amazing. And, and the crow is carrying a banner and stuff. And to me, this stuff was just like so different from what anybody else is doing. And it's, um, it's fine art. Yes. Pen, pen and ink fine art that uh, that worked really well with what Jolly Pumpkin is all about as far as like that wild ale, uh, you know, wild yeast, uh, funky, just 
very um, unique in every aspect. And, and uh, I, you know, there's still in bottles as far as I see when I go to the store and stuff like that. And to me, that, 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 that just, there's something special about all, about all of that I put into, you know, that one package, you know, nice. Nice. Ha- have you designed a beer label yet? And then- no, I haven't. No? No, I, I very rarely try and get my foot into the door. And it's one of those things where, like I said, I'm, I think I'm overdue for a post of like, I tried to get into a brewery and here's how I went about it. Um, I, and I, you know, it was, I thought if I made all these contacts and then on the side, I, 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 I tried to get my foot into the door that way that that might not tell the whole story of what, uh, you know, say an artist right out of school might want to get out of, or might need in order to be able to actually get their foot in the door. Oh, nice. Thank you very much for coming on the show. This has been awesome. Thank you. I wanna, thank you for your time. And, uh, I hope you have a good weekend, man. Thank you too. Great questions. I really appreciate it. That's it for this week. I'd like to thank our guests, Daniel Endicott and Craig Gunderson our co-host Maria Cabre, our producer Rocco Riggio, and our editor Brian O'Connell. Thanks for listening. You can catch us each Friday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time on Business Radio 132 or anytime on the SiriusXM app or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please rate the show and leave a review. Remember, people, the thirst is real. <laughs>